We're in Genesis chapter 34. So I invite you to turn there in the church Bible. You're going to find that on page 28, page 28. I'm going to read the whole chapter, um, about a page worth in my Bible. So let's give our attention to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, let's hear the word of God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask, for, ask me for uh, as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had deviled his sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised, and we will give our daughters to you, we will take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, and as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them that they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when, the, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, 
My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word lies open before us. And this difficult section confronts us. We know it is for us. You have given it to us. So God, I pray in this time that we will see Christ ultimately in spite of the wickedness on display. So help me, Father, by your Spirit, guide my thinking and my, my mouth to say only what is for your glory and for our good. Lord, we are under the authority of this word, and I know that as a mere man I cannot accomplish the things of God. So I'm asking, Father, that your spirit would do a work that, that none of us, humanly speaking, could do. So, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified in this. We pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Stories like the story of a, say, a mild-mannered reporter who sees the injustice around him and secretly transforms into a man who is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And in something under, you know, 200 minutes, the bad guy's in prison and the world's a better place. Stories like that, we know who to root for, right? It's clear. We know who to root for. We know who the hero of the story. That is unmistakable. And we can't, we can't wait for the next installment of Superman or Iron Man or Spider-Man or whatever the creative minds at Marvel come up with. But some stories, and especially true stories, they're not always so neat, are they? We know who we're supposed to root for, but the whole episode is so disgraceful that you're right to be confused by the moral rightness of the protagonist. Genesis 34 is one such story. There's, there's no Superman to admire. Not Simeon, not Levi, not even Jacob. Yet there's a decisive victory in the end, but it certainly doesn't feel right. The whole thing, the whole thing is a disgrace. Yet... Here it is in our Bibles. And um, if you are here last week, you know I, I had some agitation about preaching this text of Scripture. I'm realizing that we're dealing with some PG-13 matter. But here it is in our Bibles. And I've had a couple of weeks to kind of think through this and trust that the Lord will use this. But, but as, we've, as we've been moving through Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, really a story about the beginning of everything. And within that story, we see how God set apart a people from among all the nations, that people being unique in some way before the Lord to receive God's blessing and then ultimately serve as a beacon pointing the rest of the nations to the goodness of God. Abraham's family, his descendants are that nations. And ultimately, so that through that set apart people, 
all the nations would indeed be blessed. Now again, reflecting on our, on our journey through Genesis, God called Abraham. He set him apart to be the father of a great nation. That's Genesis 12. You can look back there. And then we followed him. Then his son, Isaac. Then Isaac's son, Jacob. And now what's happening in the story, the attention is shifting from Jacob to his sons, the ones who would ultimately become the tribal heads of this people, this set-apart people. Now, if you've been traveling through this with us, and if you've read Genesis on your own, you will see that there's this recurring theme through Genesis. And maybe, indeed, it's a, a recurring theme through the entirety of the Scriptures, that the, the narratives about people, we find that there is really only one who is good, and that is God. And what, that, what God does is that He takes, uh, in His goodness, right, what he does is he takes these, these flawed, failing, and sinful, and disgraceful people and redeems them. And he does it in order to put his own glory on display, to show his grace to the world. Now, as we consider the story, as I've already said, there's, there's a lot of disgrace to go around. And we can certainly take it as a kind of a cautionary tale. But the big picture here is that in spite of what these people do, what they have done, God's grace is bigger than even the most ugly aspects of their sinful existence. So we'll unpack the story in three headings as is my custom. I will give them to you as we move along. So here's my first heading as we consider the story before us. This is my heading. An outrageous thing. And now you saw that in the text. Now, words, words when consistently overused, right? We get it when we overuse them and when we misapply them, they tend to lose their meaning, right? So just think in terms of a positive. Here's a positive example. You know, the word awesome, I think it's been trivialized a little bit. So, for example, if somebody unexpectedly gets a coffee for you at Starbucks and upon receiving it, you say, awesome. Is it really up there with beholding the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon? Is it really the same thing? Hey, that's awesome. W what do you have left in your vocabulary for the Grand Canyon if the coffee was awesome? Now, on the negative side, on the negative side, there's the word outrageous. And again, I think the word gets overused and misapplied, and we can hear this in the political discourse, right? One person saying of his opponent, his position on this is outrageous. There are so many things in the world that are outrageous. Now, I, I focus on this because we see the word in the text, but I think the word outrageous has become overused and misapplied. But I want you to feel the weight of what's going on, and perhaps you already have in reading this story. Something that is outrageous is shocking, it is shameful, it is extreme, it is offensive, and it is absolutely disgraceful. There's my sermon title, Disgrace. So I want you to look at what happened, and let's go over these details again. Verse 1, Dinah. She went out to see the women of the land. Now we might presume uh, that Jacob's family had lived in this region for a while. Certainly enough time for, for Dinah to bef befriend some of the women, some of the Hivite women. Now, this is a detail you might not see in the text, but when you calculate the birth order of Leah's sons and Dinah among them, along with the time that Jacob spent serving Laban, 20 years, and later 
the age of Joseph, which is, we're told, get this, Dinah at this point is probably between 12 and 16 years of age. 12. 12 to 16. So Shechem, the son of this Hivite ruler, saw Dinah and disgraced her. This, the text sen- says that Shechem seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. That's, of course, euphemistic language. Again, PG-13 content here. Was she raped or seduced? Now, and I, and I use that word carefully. Uh, there's not agreement among the scholars because the phrase, he seized her, it's an, interpre- uh, an interpretation of the Hebrew word, lakach, which, which could mean take, get, fetch, lay hold of, yes, seize, receive, acquire, buy, bring, marry, take a wife, snatch, take away. So there's the range of uses for that word. Now, that said, it was certainly her brother's interpretation that she was violated. And after he violated her, Shechem loved Dinah. He wanted to have her as his wife. And so he asked his father, Hamer, to arrange it with Jacob. Now, all of this seems really horrific to our own sensibilities. I get that. That a, that a child would be assumed to be of marrying age. Yet, ancient societies, this was not uncommon. Then we get to verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. Now, Jacob remained silent. Perhaps he was deferring to his sons. or not sure why. He held his peace. But in, here's where the sons take over. They came in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant course and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. So the whole thing is outrageous. It's an outrageous thing. Now, there's an interesting phrase here, an outrageous thing in Israel. An outrageous thing in Israel. Now, it's difficult to know if this statement is the way the sons of Jacob are characterizing what happened, okay, or if this is an editorial statement by Moses, who's writing. Because this is the only the fourth time the name Israel is used in the Scripture from the beginning of Genesis. The first two times, it was on the occasion of the Lord, through an angel, telling Jacob his new name, is Israel, that he in fact becomes the the namesake of the nation. So this isn't that long ago. Two times he had that name affirmed to him. The third time was on the occasion of Jacob building an altar to the Lord, and he named it El Elohi Israel. And it was on that very location where they were living, he had built an altar to the Lord, that parcel of land he had purchased from Shechem for a dwelling for his family. So, what's with an outrageous thing has been done in Israel? And I think what this means for the reader, irrespective of what the sons of Jacob thought about themselves or understood themselves, we are to understand that Jacob's family has a cultural and religious identity that is distinct from the Hivites and the other Canaanite tribes. So that's what we need to get in our minds. These people are different. An outrageous thing has been done in Israel. 
Now, I do want to pull back from this because as, 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 as reprehensible as this whole thing is to us, I think Shechem taking Dinah by force is viewed by the sons of Jacob as a lesser crime than the fact that he is a Canaanite and from among the uncircumcised. And I say that. I say that and, and follow me on this. They knew that they were not to intermingle with the Canaanites. They understood that. They were aware of the blessing and the curse from Noah's lips. Cursed be Canaan. Servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. The Lord had declared a curse on Canaan. There was to be no intermingling with these people. They were to keep themselves separate. Now as for taking a wife by force, for the Canaanites, this may have been culturally acceptable. They were a, 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 just a, a completely immoral culture. So it may not be surprising that Shechem did this. And even for Jacob's sons, it may not be as reprehensible to them as it is to us. And, and I would just point you to a couple points in the scripture for reference, just to kind of get an understanding and how the, even the law dealt with this. The law had a provision, Exodus 22, 6. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And, and to our ears, like, what? Yet, and the Bible doesn't condone this, don't, but there's something cultural perhaps. And I'm going to point you to another story in Judges chapter 21. It describes how Israel determined to solve a problem for the tribe of Benjamin. If you look there, it's, I mean, it's, it, again, it's just horrible behavior, but they had been decimated by a civil war. And there were not enough women for the men of the tribe of Benjamin to marry. And the other tribes had made a vow against giving their own daughters voluntarily to them because of what caused the civil war. But they didn't want the tribe of Benjamin to disappear from among them. So they come up with a plan and get this. Bible doesn't condone this. This is just what happened. The men of Benjamin, with the full approval of the elders of the rest of the tribes of Israel, come up with a plan. The women of Shiloh, the young women, they're going to come for the festival. And you men of Benjamin, you lie in wait and you grab one by force and take her to be your wife. That's the solution. Of course, the reason that happened that way, because as it says in Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So even in this act, we shouldn't be so shocked that this happened because the evil had pervaded Canaanite culture and even the same kind of evil had pervaded Israelite culture. It doesn't excuse it. It just describes it. So I'm trying to get at what's, the sons of Jacob, what is their motivation? I believe that Shechem's offense was not primarily to them, was not primarily against Dinah, but against the people of Israel as a whole, against the family. So I, I take it that they weren't as concerned for their own sister as they were concerned for their own honor. Doesn't make it right, but I think that's what's going on here. And I think that explains what happens in terms of the response of Jacob's sons. Now, Dinah and all of Jacob's family. They were sinned against greatly. There's no doubt about that fact. But Israel's proximity to Shechem, to, that, to the Hivite tribes and Shechem, it gave Shechem that sinful opportunity. 
and in socializing with the women of Canaan and presumably knowing the Canaanite culture, Dinah was in a seriously dangerous place. Again, not excusing it. That's probably the reality. And there's all kinds of application here for, for, for young women today. And let me, this is a complete aside. Sexual assault is a horrible thing that happens, right? But it is good and wise to tell our loved ones, young women especially, please don't go there. Please don't be with those people. Please, please, please make wise choices. Doesn't put the woman at fault for being assaulted. I'm not saying that, but there can be a lot of wisdom in just simply keeping distance. And I wonder if the Israelites' proximity to the Hivites put them in danger and endangered Dinah. Well, because we're familiar with God's word, we who belong to the family of God, we will always observe and often suffer outrageous acts of sin because we are living in a spiritual Canaan. We're trying to be the people of God among people around us who have no regard for his law, who do not even regard him with any reverence. So we will see things, and it is outrageous and disgraceful that and this is not approved by law, but it happens all the time. It is outrageous and disgraceful that young women are abducted and trafficked. It is outrageous and disgraceful that same-sex unions are called marriage by law. It is outrageous and disgraceful that the killing of the unborn has been normalized. It is outrageous that so many people foment hatred between ethnicities in the name of justice. And we could name a host of other things. And things that happened to you, outrageous things, can be very personal too. Maybe you have suffered some personal offense or injury that is outrageous and disgraceful. Perhaps an egregious medical malpractice that left you with a permanent injury or the death of a loved one or closer to home. Maybe your husband or wife was unfaithful. Or maybe it happened to you that, that a friend you thought slandered you publicly. Maybe you were defrauded out of a significant amount of money by someone you trusted. See, bad, bad things happen because there are bad people in the world. But guess what? Our crimes may not be the same, but you and I are among the bad people in the world. And apart from the grace of God to rescue us, whatever bad you see out in the world, that would be you too and me. Well, that brings us to the next heading here. An outrageous thing. Secondly, a diabolical response. A diabolical response. Now, I think we all know this. There's, a, there's a, a great difference between justice and revenge, right? Justice is supposed to be proportionate. Justice is supposed to be done uh, generally in the interests of all of society. In fact, the Old Testament in the law, it prescribed an eye for an eye, and that's purposeful. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so that an individual could not respond to a recoverable injury, even an intentional one, by the taking of a life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, injury for injury, not kill for you disrespected me. Revenge, on the other hand, is absolutely indiscriminate and does not serve in the least 
the interests of society in general. Now, Jacob's son's response to Shechem's crime, that was not justice. It was revenge, and it was diabolical. And I've chosen that word on purpose. Diabolical. You know where that word comes from? It's from the Greek word diabolos. So something that's diabolical is devil-like. It is, it is outrageously wicked. Infernal. Now I want you to look again. We'll go over the details of this. Look again how that situation unfolded. Verse 8, Shechem loved, loves Dinah. <laughs> he violated her, but, but somehow he loves her. At least he believes he does. So Hamar, his father, negotiates with Jacob's sons for Dinah to become Shechem's wife. Now understand at this point, Dinah is in Shechem's household, but he wants to make it official. And what Hamer does, verses 9 and 10, suggests that it would be the prototype marriage if the two peoples come together. So if my son and Dinah are married, it can be kind of serve as a prototype for, for our two families to get together. We can dwell together as one. And in addition, Shechem is so desperate to have Dinah, he offers whatever bride price that Jacob and his sons might demand in exchange. Whatever. Verse 13, we're told, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Now, verses 13 through 29. I want you to see how disgraceful their offer was. Again, they were deceitful. But look at the details of this. First of all, the sons of Jacob made an offer that was forbidden. They indeed offered that the two would become one people with the Hivites. Now, in view of God's covenant with them, they had no right to make that offer. And then what they did was they applied the sign of the covenant circumcision that the Lord gave to them as a sign and seal of the covenant that the Lord made, but they used it, offered it to the Hittites without them even acknowledging the Lord of the covenant. And what it did was that it showed Jacob's sons had little regard for the Lord's covenant. They had little regard for God's promise. And ultimately, they used circumcision as a weapon of war. They used it as a weapon of war. Now, I just, just want you to pause there to, to contemporize it. Can you imagine using something that God gives to you as a gift, something that is a reminder of his promises, and using that very thing to destroy someone? It's like inviting your enemy to the communion table and spiking the wine with poison. It's a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. And with all that they'd said, they would then permit Shechem to have Dinah as his wife. I mean, that should have been off the table. Now, they're acting deceitfully, I understand, but even to speak it out loud. Now, of course, Hamar thinks nothing of this. Hamar was pleased with the offer, and it pleased Shechem too. He was willing to do anything. He was getting what he wanted, and they were able to persuade all of the men of the city to be circumcised. They're thinking, Look at this. We're going to join our two families together. All of their stuff becomes our stuff. We can have their daughters. They can, we can have their, their sons will marry our daughters. Our sons, our daughters will marry their sons. It's a, we'll just be one big happy family and we'll just, it'll be great. That's what they're thinking. Now, of course, you know what happens in the story, right? Where the men are healing, Simon and Levi killed Hamor. They killed Shechem and they slaughtered every male. And then they took Dinah back. Not only that, they just plundered them. 
took anything that they could find of value in the houses, herds, donkeys, crops. They took it all, including the women and children. Now, it's so ugly. It's just so disgraceful, isn't it? Now, now I, I have to admit that first time I read through this story, th there's a piece of it that seems kind of like, oh, they got theirs. But they killed every last male in the city because of one man. What Shechem did to Dinah and, and Jacob's family was certainly a disgrace, but, but Simeon and Levi's response was even more outrageous, more disgraceful. It was revenge and it was evil. We, we just have to admit that. So, as a people of God, we, we who have been redeemed from the eternal consequences of our own sin by Christ, we have looked to him in faith. We know something that the world does not know. We know grace. We recited together what included Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus was offered up as a propitiation for our sins, right? He absorbed like a, like a sponge the, the full measure of the wrath of God so that it would not land upon us. And if you've trusted in Christ, you're guiltless before God. The entire record of your sins, as you've repented before God and trusted in Christ, the entire record of your sins is cast as far as the east is from the west. That, that's grace. That's mercy. That is an, an immeasurable gift that, that we can't even fully describe or, 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 or see the value of. But we have it, and the world does not. We know that. So when we are sinned against, we have to have a different response than the rest of the world, even to those that sin against us in outrageous ways, even to those who sin against us in outrageous ways. Jesus calls us to a different ethic. This may be familiar to you from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that. What he's saying is that you prove, you prove that you belong to God if you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So as believers, we live among people who will sin against us in outrageous ways. But it says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy towards us, it's the beginning, we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. And the pattern of the world includes exacting revenge on those who might revile us, on those who might belittle us, on those who would injure us. That's the way of the world. But we're told the people of God are, are supposed to be different. Why? Because we know grace. We know what Jesus has done for us. We know he has absorbed God's wrath that belonged to us. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 9, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35. Now I get it. That is, that is really difficult. In fact, 
That's impossible. That is impossible for us apart from the grace of God operating in our lives. I know. But we have to know this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Justice will be satisfied for all who sin against you in one of two ways. That justice will be satisfied. Either in the final judgment in hell or by Christ when that person trusts that Jesus' sacrifice at the cross was sufficient to cover those sins. A repentant person who has sinned against you, who turns to Christ, that's wiped out in the same way that your sin was wiped out before God. Now, like I said, considering what happened to Dinah, there's, there's a piece in me, the protective dad blood, I think, that identifies with, with Jacob's sons. But that's a fleshly response. That's not what Jesus calls us to. I also know this to be true. That root of sin is still something in all of us, and we need to be aware of it. Now, we may not go on a murderous spree to get revenge, but all of us are tempted at times when we feel offended in a conversation to use words, to use words, and hurt. I know I do that. Even the people we love, we do that with. And so we have to test our minds, test our actions. Do we respond in kind when somebody offends you to then belittle or insult? In John 13, 34, Jesus commanded that his disciples love one another. That command is, is very purposeful because he knows and the reality is the temptation is not to love one another. The temptation is not to behave in a way that builds up one another. So he told them, love one another. And he gave himself as the example, the pattern, as I have loved you. That's the way you're supposed to do this. And the way Jesus loved us is that he laid down his life. And that is the pattern for us, brothers and sisters. We know grace. In his letter, the apostle Peter exhorts this, above all, keep loving one, or one another earnestly. And he tells them that because there is something that we have to take for granted. Since love covers a multitude of sins, you're with people in community, you're going to sin against each other. You got to love. Love will cover that multitude of sins. You'll be sinned against by your brothers and sisters in Christ. But because you have been forgiven in Christ, you must forgive. And in love, you must respond the way that Jesus loves us. And Jesus said that's what makes us as belonging to him. That's what serves that ethic of loving one another. It is a witness to the world. Well, finally, a compromised witness, a compromised witness. Uh, last summer, coming home from vacation, Kathy went out to the deck to check on her plants. She wanted to water them. She immediately told me that, that something smelled bad. Um, now, last summer, I, I'd say I didn't 
notice right away because I was still dealing with my <laughs> long COVID symptom of not really smelling very well, right? I didn't have that keenest sense. But after some investigation, I found a dead possum at the most unreachable part underneath my deck. And I eventually did get close enough to it that the horrible odor of rotting flesh made me gag. It was just so disgusting. And I'm kind of squeamish with dead animals. And the last thing I wanted to do was crawl under there and retrieve it. But it, it just made the, made the deck unusable. Now, I finally figured out how to uh, use one of those long paint roller extensions. <laughs> and I kind of prodded it and pushed it and eventually dragged it out. The story gets worse because then I hurled it over the fence because I've got some woods behind me and I didn't throw it far enough and it stunk up the backyard so I had to go back down there and bury it with some stuff. It was just, it was disgusting. It was disgusting. I was, I was so desperate. I always called somebody in the church who, who's really good at handy stuff. And I'd say, I'll pay you 200 bucks. Just go get the thing and get it out of there. <laughs> Found a way. Found a way. The stench. There's this offense. You can't be around this thing, right? Now, when Simeon and Levi came back from their killing spree, Jacob rebuked them. Verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. You've made me stink. You've made our whole tribe a, a, a putrid offense to everybody around. And this is what I'm calling this compromised witness. And so if we think about this, a, a stench, this, this horrible offense, it doesn't sound even remotely like what God called them to be in his covenant. I'll remind you, verse, chapter 26, verse 4. God said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in you, your offspring, sorry, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That doesn't sound like Jacob and his sons became even close to a blessing. And whatever the Lord set them apart for, they became the opposite. Not a blessing, but a stench. Now, Jesus told his disciples to expect tribulation in the world. That's John 16, In 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that is a given. That is a given. So, so what do we do? contrasted with what Jacob's sons did in response to the evil done to them. Here's the picture. 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I know we often take that verse and use it as sort of an evangelistic kind of preparation, like be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you. The context here is they're being reviled and abused and unjustly treated. These Christians are suffering outrageous sins. The exhortation, 
honor Christ the Lord as holy. Being prepared to make a defense in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that reviling. Speak of Christ. Now, I would suggest to you that this exhortation on Peter's part goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. In his offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what we're told. So now as the new covenant people of God, we have been blessed in his offspring, namely Jesus Christ. And now our role in the world is to be salt and light in order that we may point people to Christ. That's why we exist. So, yes, we have been called to holiness and righteousness in Christ. We've been called to that. Because that reflects the very character of God in us, right? If we belong to Jesus, then we're going to reflect his character. That will be built up in us over time. But it would be very tempting to look at the world beyond us and see our our role in the world as, as trying to set things right. Avenging evil. Calling out and condemning the sins of the world. But that is not our role. It wasn't even Jesus' primary objective when he walked the earth. John 3, 17, right? God's love of the world is 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, writing about his own apostolic ministry, the Apostle Paul described his own posture towards and message to the world. And I think this, this is instructive for us. We can take this to heart. He said this, Christ reconciled himself to us. Now, the fact that he reconciled himself to us means that we were strangers, we were distant, we were separated from God, but Christ reconciled us to himself. And what did he do? And gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us Paul, but I think by extension us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So here's the application. We see evil in the world, but God has not given us a ministry of judgment. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation. And if we're known for anything as a church, if we're known for anything as individuals, it should be that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, we turn a blind eye to evil in the world or, or call it out. But if all the world hears from us, is you're all a bunch of sinners, if that's all they hear from us, I think we've missed the most important part of the message. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. God making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. As I said at the beginning, this whole story is a disgrace. An outrageous thing was done to Dinah. Simeon and Levi's response was diabolical, and in the end, it compromised their witness to the nations. We can see that. But, But here's the amazing thing. In spite of all that, God did not abandon them. While Abraham and his sons 
and all of the tribes, they ultimately failed to represent God to the world. His ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ, did so perfectly. And so the hope for us today, brothers and sisters, that even though we are disgraceful, we are shameful people, we've been counted righteous before God by faith in Christ. And, and not only does he take the, the eternal consequence for our sin away from us, but he also gives us power in the present, breaking that power of sin over us so that indeed increasingly in an consistent measure we reflect the character of Jesus. So when others sin against us, we can forgive and we have the power of Christ not to respond sinfully. And when we do respond sinfully, the Spirit of God moves in us to recognize our failure so that we confess, repent before the Lord and, and others that we've sinned against and seek to make things right, all because of the grace of God operating in our lives. So we can respond when we're reviled, when we can respond when we're persecu persecuted, and we can do good works that glorify God because we are ministers of reconciliation to the world. And by God's grace, in Christ, that is what God is working in us. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we are we're seeing uh, our own motivations ourselves, even if we hold those things in check at times, but the temptations of Levi... And Simeon, Jacob's sons, and the brutality of their response, those are temptations that have swirled through our minds at times. And Father, we have to acknowledge that. And we know, Father, that the only reason we stand in your presence is because of what Christ, your Son, has done for us in carrying our own sin to his cross, dying and leaving it there in the tomb and rising again so that his life becomes our life. So God, teach us Teach us to examine our motives and our thoughts and our, our actions and compare them to Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us. And Lord, that, that such that when we do suffer persecution and outrageous acts of sin, Lord, that we are indeed prepared to give an answer about the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Equip us for that day, Lord. It may be nearer than we expect. We want to be people that honor you. We want to be people that, are, that have a, an effective witness in this world because of what you have accomplished in your Son for us. Father, as we uh, turn our attention now to the table that the Lord Jesus prepared and established for his disciples and us by extension, we pray that by your spirit you would meet us there. Remind us of the grace poured out upon us because your wrath was poured out on your son. We pray in his name. Amen.